We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Peter Deadman. Peter is, well, he's a longtime practitioner. We'll get into that in just a few moments. He uh, founded and is uh, one of the editors of the Journal of Chinese Medicine. I think it's the longest standing English-speaking journal we have on Chinese medicine. Uh, he has co-authored really the definitive book on acupuncture points, the Manual of Acupuncture, and recently completed a book on Yangsheng, which is the, that translates as nourishing life. It's a book of Chinese medicine practices that enhance everyday well-being. And that is really the subject of our show. We're going to get into all of that. Peter, welcome to Everyday Acupuncture. Hi there. Good to have you here. Hey, I'm curious, you've, you've been doing acupuncture for a long time. How long have you been at this and, and what got you into it? Okay, well, why don't I give you a little potted biography just to, because that ex helps explain how I got into acupuncture, but even more how I got into writing uh, the Yangsheng book. I was part of the 60s hippie generation. Uh, I was a young 16-year-old in the early 60s when there was a kind of flurry of interest in Eastern practices, Buddhism, Tibet, yoga, you know, we didn't really know much about them, but they were different and sexy. And um, a lot of people, as, as we know, got into that, particularly the Indian culture thing. With me, that attraction, that interest stayed. And I was also a slightly wild traveler. I had some great times and great experiences. But I ended up sick. I had a bad case of hepatitis. And it was when I was really quite ill that a book rather magically appeared. It was a book on what was called Macrobiotics by George Osawa. 
listeners may be familiar with macrobiotics, but essentially it was a a diet and a worldview based on Japanese culture, yin yang principles, natural foods, organic food, very much ahead of its time. And apart from hedonism, this was the first thing that had really grabbed me and excited me. And that became a route for me to get better. And it became a profession. So I started a macrobiotic restaurant at the local university where I live in the south of England. And that kind of naturally led into setting up a natural foods business that was a shop and a bakery and a cafe and then increasingly grew into a kind of warehouse distribution unit. I left after a few years in 1978. I was tired of running a food business, but that business has gone on and is now one of the UK's biggest natural food distributors. When we quit, or when I quit the the business, the three of us who who owned it gave gave it away uh, for it to become a workers' co-op. So it's now a workers' cooperative employing about 130 people. And it was leaving that business um, that led me into acupuncture, or rather it was my enthusiasm to study acupuncture in 1975, early days, that caused me to, to leave the business. I practiced for just over 30 years and quit practice about eight or nine years ago. So it's kind of a rather long-winded answer to your question, but I can go over any part of that that interests you if you want. Right. Well, no, I, I, you know, I find it interesting. You're this wild hippies kid who travels to Asia, gets sick, learns something very personal about the power of this kind of medicine. And then essentially you come back and become a businessman. <laughs> it's so interesting how things unfold at times. And Well, let me just interject there. Just that question of business, which is quite something that I have quite strong views about. When we started that business, we knew absolutely nothing whatsoever about business. And in fact, we operated for, for months under the mistaken assumption that markup was the same as profit and could never work out why the sums didn't add up. <laughs> the, the vision wasn't business at all. The vision, the vision was a vision. Um, it was to... You know, I don't know why we picked up on this so many years, really, before I was going to say everybody else. Of course, not everybody else. It's a small minority of people understood. But the majority of people didn't understand, including the medical and scientific professions, simply didn't understand that diet, nutrition was integral to health and well-being. I mean, it's really hard to realize how angry the scientific world was when this was proposed so for example when it was written in a macrobiotic magazine in the 1970s that diet played a role in the development of cancer the police raided the shop that sold this magazine because it was considered to be heresy so things have come a long way but anyway what i was really saying is that the the motive wasn't business it we used a business to deliver an ideal and that's kind of the principle I've gone with all my life. I, I mean, I have been an entrepreneur among many things, but my understanding of being an entrepreneur is doing what I most believe in and most feel is right, and then discovering that 
that works from a business point of view. Business as service. I mean, service with yeah. a capital S, not just service like I'm, I'm, I'm selling you this thing, but service with the capital S. Absolutely, yeah. Tell us a bit about Yangsheng. It sounds like this Yangsheng book in some ways began long ago with your, your wild inquiries in the 60s. And, and one of the things that I've found in my short experience with Chinese medicine is that the, the Chinese medicine point of view, really the, the, the Chinese scientific, ancient Chinese scientific point of view, in many ways is very, very different from our Western point of view. So I'm curious to know, how can we, with our sort of Western eyes, so to speak, begin to look at, understand, and engage these ancient Chinese, both medical well-being and in some ways Chinese scientific practices? Yeah, okay. Well, I don't know if you had a chance to look at my book, my discussion of the Yangsheng tradition, but it's basically written for any interested reader. It's not written for the Chinese medicine profession. And I've tried to uh, explain to the best of my ability some of the principles behind Yangsheng as I understand them, um, even including explaining some pretty basic Chinese medicine principles. And I've backed pretty much everything up with really vast amounts of lifestyle research and so on. And I would say that the average interested and intelligent person when encountering these ideas explained in a simple way just gets them immediately i think it's just simply lack of exposure to these ideas i really have not found i haven't found a single reader who has been puzzled or anything other than pleased delighted impressed um persuaded by the teachings of of young Cheng. so I think it's just exposure. It it reaches us as human beings on a deep level because it talks about our human life in a way that is deep and rich and meaningful, straightforward, really. So there, there's a certain sensibility that just it just kind of rings true. I think it rings true. You see, one of the problems with Western medicine and I, I'm a big fan of Western medicine, don't get me wrong, you know, and, and Western science. But particularly Western medicine is, for all its brilliance, it doesn't really engage in a meaningful way with people who are suffering sickness. And to be told what your lab, laboratory diagnosis is, or even your disease diagnosis, whilst it may lead to effective treatment, and it can be a relief to have a diagnosis, it doesn't really speak to us in any other way. Whereas I'll tell you um, something I just wanted to say. On this, these early macrobiotic days, I'd say one of the core principles was handing responsibility for our health and well-being back to ourselves as individuals. Not complete responsibility. There's a lot that's not in our control. We can't change our constitution. We can't change the luck that we have in life. But there is a significant space for lifestyle and behavior to affect our health and this was really the principle of macrobiotics that it's a lot of it is in our own hands so the macrobiotic thing focused mostly on diet not exclusively um i did want to say that a few years after opening the shop we set up a charity which is still going called the brighton natural health center brighton is the city 
that I live in and where the shop is. And this was set up to take these ideas of self-responsibility for health and well-being beyond the narrow, well, deep but narrow dietary field um, into various other practices. So we were one of the first centers to teach high-quality yoga, tai chi, qigong, dance, meditation, and so on. Then I started studying Chinese medicine, and here's the thing. For many years, I lecture a lot, and I've lectured for decades, actually. So once I started getting interested in lecturing on Yangsheng about maybe 10, 12 years ago, I remember I used to say, I used to argue that Yangsheng or cultivation of health was a branch of Chinese medicine. You know, Chinese medicine has got a kind of common theoretical root, and then it branches out into specialities like acupuncture, like herbal medicine, like tuena, like dietary medicine, and so on. And I, and I used to say that Yangsheng was a branch of Chinese medicine. So I, I probably heard somebody say it once, and the idea appealed to me. The more I studied it in preparation for writing the book, I realized that's not quite true. I would say Yangsheng is the absolute foundation of our medicine. Um, and it's very, very clear if you have the eyes to see it. Um, the Bible of Chinese medicine, people would pretty universally agree, is the, the Neijing, the Yellow Emperor's classic. And it's a non-fiction book, and so like most non-fiction books, it lays down its core principles, lays out its stall in chapter one, and the very, very first words of the Neijing are a discussion between the Yellow Emperor and Chibo about why people of that age so this is around 2,000 years ago, were exhausted, decrepit, and ill by the age of 50, whereas in previous times, so harking back to a golden age, people retain their strength and vigor until the age of 100. And Chibo replies it's because they don't know how to live. They don't rest properly, uh, they don't sleep properly, they um, drink too much alcohol, they chase pleasures all the time, they don't hang on to their serenity. So... Uh, this is the opening of the core text of Chinese medicine. So I would say that the question of nourishing health and preventing disease is a big part of what Chinese medicine is about and always has been about for various reasons. And one of them is, however lovely the medicine and however much we fall in love with our Chinese medicine or if you're studying Western medicine, you might fall in love with that. The harsh truth is, when you're in practice, you discover most chronic disease is not curable. Uh, what medicine offers most chronic disease is um, amelioration, possibly improvement, possibly stopping further decline. It's very unusual, if not impossible, to cure chronic heart disease or to cure strokes or to cure dementia or to cure diabetes. So it's simple common sense that the heart of medicine is to try and prevent them happening in the first place. And that is, again, famously discussed in Chapter 2 of the Neijing. It says, waiting until a disease is developed before you intervene is like only starting to dig a well when you're already seriously thirsty or only starting to forge weapons once the battle is raging all around you. So it's very clear this has been a core principle of Chinese medicine. Whether most of us observe that in practice, I don't know. 
But um, so I've, I've come round to or come back to this Chinese doctor I want to mention, the one that I learned a lot of a lot from, Dr. John Shen, who was already quite an old man when he first came to the UK in the 1980s and taught some very seminal seminars that powerfully generation of practitioners, people like Giovanni Machocha, Julian Scott, and others. He was a master diagnostician, um, quite a miraculous guy in many ways. But the key thing was his way of encountering patients and diagnosing was always to ask the question, why is this person ill? Mm-hmm. Not simply this person has stagnation or has deficiency. Why? What is it about their life, past, before birth, uh, in the womb, after birth, childhood, teenagerhood, adulthood? What is it that has happened to them or what is it that they've done that has led to this illness? So that really embedded in me this idea as practitioners of Chinese medicine, we look really widely at the context of a person's life to understand how disease came about. You know, this is so different than the usual Western model, which is there's a symptom and we want to get rid of the symptom. And and to some degree, and, and I speak as a practitioner here, I, I rarely have people come to me saying, help me enhance my life. They often will come to me because they've got something they don't want to have and they want to get rid of it. Or they come to me because there's something they don't have and they'd like to get it. Um, but it's it's often more about chasing a thing. There's a very narrow focus. And to open it up to this broader context, exactly what you were just talking about. Why is this here? What is it about the stream of a person's lifetime that has allowed this particular set of circumstances to arise? People are usually looking for a way to fix things, it seems. And, and, you know, often that's why myself and many acupuncturists are in business, because people are coming in with those needs. And, and, and yet, at, at the core, I think we also know that chasing symptoms or just trying to fix one thing out of a whole constellation of, 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 of things that all work together often is not that helpful. Yeah, I'd actually sort of argue, disagree with your premise there. Um, First of all, as a practitioner, I never had patients with people who want to come in and fix their life, um, you know, and don't have anything wrong with them. That's not the role of Chinese medicine. That's the role of meditation or Tai Chi or psychotherapy or whatever. We all need medicine. In our lives, there will inevitably come times when we can't handle things ourselves. We need help from somebody else. And how wonderful that there are skilled doctors and different kinds of medicine to help us. There's no argument with that. It's really that some things simply can't be got better without questioning how they arise. I mean, let's just take a very, very simple example. One of the most common uh, everyday diseases is digestive disease. I mean, if you look at the stats, the I can't remember right now, but the percentage of people who, in say the US population, who visit their doctor with digestive disease in any one year, it's just enormously high, 10% or something like that. And the amount of money spent on over-the-counter digestive medicines is runs into the billions or the tens of billions. 
I would say that the great majority of digestive disease is caused by lifestyle. It's caused by improper eating habits in the wider sense, the ones that come under their heading normally taught in Chinese medicine as regular eating or irregular eating. Quantity, timing, peace of mind when you eat, speed of eating, all that kind of really, really ordinary stuff. And without addressing that, it's very unlikely that it is that we're going to be able to successfully treat digestive disease, except in the short term. You know, it'll get better for a while and it will come back. We'll take um, cardiovascular disease. I mean, the World Health Organization says that 80% of cardiovascular disease can be prevented by lifestyle. And any sensible cardiovascular specialist nowadays, the first thing they'll do after emergent, any unnecessary emergency treatment is, well, the first thing they should do, it's proper practice, is to get people to change their lifestyle. It's, it's not the changing, looking at the causes of disease and changing one's lifestyle as a kind of an abstract thing that is separate from the process of getting better. In many cases, it's one and the same thing. Right. What's in the way is the way. I'm curious, I want to just shift this a little bit. I think the Chinese Yangsheng tradition, as well as what conventional Western medicine medicine tradition, they both look at movement and think that movement is important. I'm curious from your point of view how Yangsheng might see the importance of movement and what kind of movement as being different from what we would usually think about in the West, which is often cardiovascular sorts of exercises. And um, what are some types of movement that listeners could perhaps begin to engage that would be helpful for them? Okay. For me, this is an enormous subject and one I'm sort of inching my way towards thinking about writing a book about because I have great passion for the practice of Qigong and associated internal practices like Bagua and a little bit of Xing Yi. It's been an absolutely vital part of my life uh, now and it's really it's what I most love teaching. And I'm very, very interested in this topic. Uh, uh, it is a very complicated topic. I mean, you know, everybody loves what they do and thinks what they do is the best. So that's a danger. In fact, funnily enough, in terms of the nourishment of life, a, a figure I quote a couple of times in my book, a really interesting guy, is a third century alchemist called Ge Hong, who... Um, he says, beware of people who tout the one thing they're good at. So, you know, Tai Chi practitioners will tell you Tai Chi is the best thing to do and high-intensity interval training practitioners will tell you that's the best. Um, I think it's, it's a very big question and hard to answer very simply. I would say the starting point for me is what do we think exercise is for? What do we think movement is for? What are we after? So if I was asked, why do I practice Qigong? I would say, well, I want my body to be strong enough to conduct daily activities and particularly to be able to continue to conduct them as I age. I want my body to be flexible enough to be able to conduct daily activities right through into my aging. I want to have really good balance. So I 
don't fall over. I want to have an integrated body where all my movements are natural, that the whole body flows. I don't have kind of stuck areas that can easily become diseased. Um, I want to restore or maintain or restore useful elasticity to my fascia. I want a stable mind and a stable body. So the mental aspect of my practice is just as important as the physical one. This is not about running and thinking just about just about anything else other than what you're doing because it's uncomfortable or painful or grinding away in the gym, distracting yourself by watching your television. What we're looking at, what I'm looking at, is a fully integrated mind and body with breath. And I want a decent level of fitness. So when I go hiking, I can walk all day and I can climb mountains reasonably well. I'm not looking to be a super athlete. I'm looking for something that fully enhances my daily life and continues to do so into old age. And that that rules out a lot of sporting, a lot of exercise activity. A lot of exercise is tested on the basis of very short-term and very narrow results. I mean, high-intensity interval training may deliver the biggest bang for the buck in 20 minutes a week, but does it permeate one's whole life and being with, um, you know, really these, this great range of valuable qualities? I mean, that would be my take. I also think that, that there's been uh, – this is something really I'm beginning to research. I read a very interesting, fabulous book recently called Move Your DNA by um, Katie Bauman, who's a proponent of what she calls paleo movement. So let's not confuse that with paleo diet, which I'm a bit skeptical about. Paleo movement is the very simple and inarguably correct observation that these human bodies we have evolved um, through continuous use. Um, If you think of our ancestors who squat very easily, they played, they rolled around, until they became, you know, old enough to hunt or to climb trees or to gather. They were playing all the time. These human bodies pounded grain and dug the earth and uh, washed clothes by hand and uh, danced for fun and everything. We're designed for almost continuous natural movement. So her argument is that, first of all, we need to move. And that's exactly what the Yangsheng tradition says. I mean, from the very beginning, constantly you find this idea presented usually in the almost the same words, century after century after century, we should learn to exercise from nature, like water, which flows continuously, um, like the leather hinges of a door that don't get eaten by insects because they're always moving. Sun Samyao said one should not sit down for too long and we shouldn't lie down. For too long but we should just keep moving so um we have a modern world where people are immobile a lot of people are immobile for most of the day and then they go and do this fierce burst of hot sweaty activity in the gym um which we now know does not definitely counter the negative um effects of sitting down too long so as far as heart health is concerned but it also has a very uh, narrow view of I mean, I think pretty much everybody agrees that we need both Chinese medicine and Western medicine. We need a very free and vigorous blood circulation. 
But in the Western exercise tradition, this is pretty much narrowed down to aerobic cardiovascular exercise, getting the heart pumping um, vigorously and fast. That forces the, the blood around the body. Hey, presto, the problem is, is solved. But, of course, there are at least two, in my understanding, my current understanding, which is developing by the day, there are at least two other really important factors in blood circulation. One of them is flexibility of the blood vessels. And that, to me, is demonstrates how incredibly important the softness with strength approach of the Chinese internal exercise tradition is. Um, the third thing, as Katie Bellman points out, is it's when muscles move. Every time a muscle moves, it activates blood flow through that muscle. So we're not necessarily looking for incredibly vigorous short-term movement. We're looking for natural movement, um, which is carried out for long periods of time. So in the internal exercise tradition, you might take very simple, elastic movements that, in modern terms, constantly coil and uncoil the fascia. In traditional terms, lengthen and relax the channels and just repeat them over long periods of time in a very mindful way, coordinated with deep, slow breathing. This is a fabulous way to achieve cardiovascular health and more. Hope you've enjoyed the first half of the show. Now it's time for a word from our sponsor. That would be you. You could support the effort here by popping over to everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and click on the link to support the show and leave a few dollars that will help to keep some inspiration in the teacup. You know, we run on only the finest oolong and poorer teas here at Everyday Acupuncture Podcast Central. No point in going all NPR pledge drive here to remind you that teas like that don't come cheaply. Just know that if you like the show, you can express your appreciation for these interviews with a small donation. As always, I love to get your feedback and ideas for future shows, so send those along too. Thanks again for listening, and now on to the second half of the show. Yes, I would like to dig into that just a little bit more. That mindful aspect that goes with our movement. Uh, again, looking at the image of the modern Western gymnasium with people on treadmills plugged into something that they're listening to or, or they're watching TV or they're reading a book. And in some ways, they are moving their bodies, but they are anywhere but here. And, and I hear you speaking to this aspect of not just moving our bodies, but inhabiting that movement with our mind and our breath as well. It sounds like it's a very, very important aspect. And, and I'm curious to know, why is that so darn important? Why is it so important? Well, I think, oh gosh, so many reasons. Um, just take a few. Well, let's first of all, um, really mindful practice undoubtedly delivers similar benefits to meditation. And we know from a decade or two of meditation research that meditation trains the brain. I mean, we know now we have a plastic brain, that different parts of the brain can actually grow in response to mental activity. And we know that the effects of meditation grow areas of the, related to um, emotional self-control, patience, things that enhance our 
sense of contentment and well-being. You know, these are these are big pluses which which can be delivered through fully absorbed and mindful uh, physical practice as well as sitting meditation. You know, it's a a spectrum from sitting practice to moving practice in the internal exercise tradition. They're not radically different. The, the second thing is that whatever else you want to do, if you want to play a sport, if you want to hike, if you want to be agile and not be clumsy, you need body awareness. I mean, I teach Qigong. I'm astonished how unaware of their bodies the majority of people are. They're just not connected to their arms and their hands in a deep way. You ask them to perform fairly simple movements and they're not connected enough to know that their arm is not actually doing it. People, especially as they get older, become very disconnected from their feet and their legs. So they no longer trust them and they can't walk downstairs safely. They can't cross irregular ground. I mean, these are things I love to do. I love to hike. Why would I not want to be sure-footed and have awareness in the soles of my feet and the tips of my toes? That's the second. And the third thing is, I'm going to just cut in with a quotation from um, BKS Iyengar, who's a yoga teacher who died a couple of years ago. I remember he said, um, health is not fitness, but awareness, which flows like a river through every part of the body. So I would say an aware body is a healthy body. And even if your preoccupation is a tennis serve or jumping over a hurdle in a 110-meter race, you need this acute awareness of the alignment of every part of the body. That's, of course, why uh, slow, deeply aware movements are practiced endlessly for hours in the internal martial arts tradition, because when you want to deliver a punch, deliver a takedown, uh, a defense, you need to have an, a very aware integrated body. I mean, this is amusing to me. This is the source of the kind of incorrect magical thinking that people sometimes love to bring to observation of Chinese internal exercises. They talk about, you know, such and such a Chinese Tai Chi practitioner whose mastery of Qi is so profound that they can send somebody flying without even touching. That's rubbish. Yeah, that's not true at all. But they can send somebody flying with a fairly small movement because every single part of the body is integrated in the ultimate connected delivery of power through a given point. So this comes from the slow build-up of alignment and awareness and placement and connection and integrated body. So I would say exercise without that is deeply shallow, even if you get, you know, six packs. Uh, sorry, I'm being rude. I mean, people love their exercise and it makes them feel vibrant and alive. I shouldn't uh, denigrate it in any way. I just feel that this is richer and deeper. Yes. Well, you know, I, I see this and, and I see this with some patients. They may have a physique that would, you know, grace the cover of a magazine. And they may in some ways be strong, but they're not at all supple. They may have hard muscles, but they can't move those muscles through the complete full range of motion. 
this is really typical of people who do um, weights, really, and do too much strength training. It's, um, you know, everything is a payoff, isn't it? I mean, if you develop too much muscle strength, you pay by uh, reduced flexibility. And actually, we might think that's not so important. I mean, what's – okay, so here's a question. What's so special about flexibility? Well – that's 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 a great question. Yeah, the first thing is obviously it's desirable to be flexible enough to do whatever it is we want to do. A tree, or um, reach down into a difficult place and get something, or you know, just ordinary daily, you know, slide into our car and slide out of our car. Whatever, we need that much flexibility. Beyond that, there's a strong argument. I would say that greater flexibility than that has risks attached to it. Um, I would say in the yoga world, it's increasingly being understood that excessive flexibility, especially in women, um, can over a long time cause damage to joints that are opened too strongly, particularly the hip joint, because there's not enough sinew strength to restrain that. So maybe actually be a bit better for you in the long term to be a slightly tight male than a hyper-flexible female. Um, but there's another thing about flexibility that is important, having a supple body, which is research that indicates that there's a correlation between overall physical flexibility and flexibility of the blood vessels. So when they, um, they did this research in gyms, they took runners and they took weight trainers and I can't remember the third group might have been, I can't quite figure out, sorry, I can't quite remember exactly how the study worked. But the outcome of it was the only thing that correlated to blood vessel flexibility, which is important in the prevention of high blood pressure and um, other blood movement diseases, the only correlation was being able to sit with your back against the wall and reach down and touch your toes. So if the body is reasonably flexible, it's likely that the blood vessels are flexible. If the body is a great big bundle of tight gym bunny muscle, it's fairly likely that the blood vessels won't be flexible. And that's not, in the long term, it's not a good thing. Right. You know, this takes me back a little, well, it does take me back to something you mentioned earlier in our discussion today about people seeming to be keen on the thing that they like or they're good at. And I can't remember who it was. It's one of my teachers somewhere along the way talked about how the people who have these really strong muscled bodies, they often put on muscle easily. And so they like it. And so they do more of it. And they could really benefit from a bit more flexibility. They could benefit from a little yoga or Tai Chi or, or something of that nature. Whereas the people that are super bendy and flexible they tend to gravitate toward things like yoga. And, and like you were saying just a few minutes ago, they would be better served by having a little bit more, shall we say, tensile strength in their system. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. And do, let's remember that the, um, the real bodybuilders are some of the un unhealthiest people on the planet. <laughs> and also, incidentally, have some of the lowest levels of self-esteem. But... Um, I was just to take a, a slightly different angle on it. You sent me a couple of questions beforehand, and you asked some of the basic principles of Yang Chang. And 
I was thinking about them, and there are a, f- a few core principles. Um, and one of them is the idea of stopping before completion. Mm. It goes actually goes right back to the Tao Te Ching. Um, I can't remember the exact quotation, but you know, if you over sharpen the blade, it will soon blunt. So there's this idea: don't take everything to its limit. Uh, we see that in Daya, this everyday Chinese saying that I think even nowadays probably every Chinese person, even young person, knows because the proverb, eat to 70% of your capacity, don't eat to 100% of your capacity. And in exercise, both don't train to exhaustion. And we must remember, incidentally, that a lot of the Yangsheng books are written by the wealthy and the nobles who needed to take more exercise they needed to tell each other that it's really important to move, but they could look all around them at manual laborers. They could look at people who labored hard physically every day of their lives and see that they were exhausted by the age of 40 or 50. You know, we've all seen photos of certain areas of the world where life is hard and um, 45 year olds look like our 70 year olds. Um, so they were very aware that excessive exercise is is harmful and so it refers stopping before completion refers to quantity and i suggest in my book and when i'm teaching that the key test really of the amount of exercise you do whether it's too much um, is do you feel vigorous do you feel sprightly and bouncy do you face the prospect of you know, going downtown or into town or whatever you call it over there, you know, um, and thinking, actually, I'd rather walk or I'd rather cycle. My body would rather do that than take the bus or take the car. I, you know, I, I have to go to the fifth floor of a building and I think, right, I'd actually, I like, I want to bounce up those stairs rather than take the um, elevator. And this is very much related to the amount of exercise. I mean, uh, footballers who train for a couple of hours a day uh, often lie around for the rest of the day. They're exhausted. So when they do studies of people who – they've done studies of people doing varying amounts of exercise. It's the people who do light exercise and moderate exercise who actually end up moving more during the course of a day than the people who do um, the top end of exercise. They feel like, I've done my exercise, I'm knackered, I'm tired – I'm going to take it easy for the rest of the day. So this stopping before completion applies to quantity and also going back to the, the this flexibility thing, it applies to stretching as well. So it's very much part of the internal exercise tradition that you don't lengthen and stretch to 100%. You stop at 90% or 80%. And that, I would suggest, is probably much better at training the fascia than these, you know, stretches. That's that is so. I mean, I don't know over there in uh, in England, but I know that here in America, that is so counter to our way of thinking, which is more is better, and no pain, no gain. Yeah. Well, obviously, that's not without truth. I mean, I go on. You know, I have a teacher. I go on. Intense workshop intensives, you know, the longest I've done so far is five days. I'm sort of girding my loins to go on a nine-day intensive where we train for seven, eight hours a day. And we don't muck around, you know. We do 
we get up at half past five and do two hours of strong training before breakfast. Yeah, this is not, this is strong internal training. It's not um, aerobic, it's internal practice, but it's vig- it, it's strong. Mm-hmm. And that takes me way further than I would go in my own practice. I would stop. You know, I go, oh, it's really hard work now, I'm going to stop. Whereas when I'm on a, an intensive, I've committed to it, um, I've got my fellow practitioners to kind of shame me into carrying on, as it were, and I'm actually quite a lot older than a lot of them, and so I kind of have some anxieties about whether I'll keep up, uh, but I do, and I don't like to, to fail. But, uh, but So pushing myself in that way, by the second or third day, I become... I just can feel myself getting stronger and stronger and stronger. So, look, everything, every single thing, every single part of Yangshan and every single part of the art of living is about flexibly balancing yin and yang and applying it to whatever situation. Work go for too much pain, it's too yang, it's harmful. Too soft, too easy on yourself, it's too yin, it's not adequate. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to, you know, we have to become smart. We have to become wise. We have to observe. We have to con- constantly learn this art of living and how to manage all these different aspects of our life. And this, this is a very flexible balance. I mean, in exercise, balancing yin and yang, that speed and slowness, external focus and internal focus, strength and softness, um, willpower and acceptance and relaxation, balancing these and applying them appropriately to the day, our mood, our age, the weather, our needs, our health and sickness. This is learning to manage life. Yeah. This doesn't really fit into a three bullet point, here's what you need to know to live a good life sort of blog post, does it? (laughs) Well, look, you know, I could have written, you know, I might look, I have poured, you know, I don't want to sound over the top, but it's true. I've poured really everything that I've been into in the last 45 years in terms of my life, which includes things I've not mentioned, you know, therapy and working in nature and gardening and everything, you know, from music, dancing, everything. I've poured everything into this book and I believe I believe that I have put, I'm going to be boastful, I, you know, I, I believe that through my life I have developed a certain level of wisdom. And I have poured my wisdom into the book, but even more so I have tried to capture the wisdom of this tradition. And the book is what it is, and I, I know perfectly well that if I had written it instead as the, the Ten Secrets of Health, Wealth and Happiness, teachings from the Chinese esoteric masters, it would probably have sold 10,000 times more copies. But so be it, you know, can't be helped. Right. I, you just brought up a word. The word is wisdom. This is a, this is a curious word, and, and I hear it bantied around from time to time, and sometimes I hear people talk about it, and I go, ooh, yeah, there, there's something worth listening to here. And I'm also thinking about the old joke about the guy who wants to know about 
how to live a good and wise life. And he goes up to the top of the mountain and he asks the old wise person up there, sure. how you live a really good life? And the, and the old wise person says, good judgment. And the guy goes back down the mountain and says, yeah, good judgment, great, and gets back into his life and realizes he's got no idea how to create good judgment. So back up the mountain, ask the old wise person, how do you get good judgment? And the answer, of course, is bad judgment. When it comes to wisdom, what, how's that cultivated and how's that harvested? I mean, you've been at this for a long time. I'm reaching a point in my years where I've got much less of it in front of me than there is behind me. And I wouldn't make any great claims to wisdom. Sometimes there are things that come through living that they kind of make a certain sense. So this is a long about way of, of coming around to the question of what would you call wisdom? And... And how do you know when you're in the presence of it? Okay, well, I, here's my currently working take on wisdom. I think, I think the starting point of wisdom is to constantly be willing to learn and constantly be willing to change and to, in the light of new... I mean, in a way, it, strangely, it's like the perfect vision of the scientific method. I mean, why I kind of love science and have an enormous respect for it and, it, and why sometimes I find uh, traditional teachings um, very frustrating is the essence of science is the willingness at any moment to give up a fondly held belief in the light of new evidence. Yes. The scientists yes. don't necessarily, they don't necessarily model it all the time no. But that is the principle, and the best scientists do. If you ever, if you ever listen to cosmologists and astrophysicists, most of whose conversation I can't understand a word of, you can nevertheless tell that the fact that some new observation is made that has over the last fifty years of conventional wisdom is really, really exciting to them. They love it. Yes, that's how we should live our life. Yes, they're as happy to be wrong as they are to be right. Absolutely. So. First of all, I think it's. I think first of all, it's great if we're lucky enough to be exposed to teachers. So teachers are really important, the right kind of teachers. And I feel I've had a lot of luck in that respect. I've been into Buddhism and you know Taoist things a bit. I, I feel I've learned a lot from those. But in itself, that's not enough. I mean, you know, we only have to look around that spiritual world to see. Um, high-level guru teachers who are seriously messed up, you know, and exposure to those ideas is not enough in itself. One has to be, we have to develop a level of, well, Socrates, wasn't it Socrates? What is wisdom? Know thyself. You know, we have to constantly be aware of our, of what's hidden from us, our prejudices, our preconceptions, our blind spots, to be honest, to try and move on from them, so that's the kind of constant observation, constant learning, constant willingness to reassess and reevaluate. That's the starting point. And the second point, the second magic ingredient is time. Because the longer we do that, the smarter we get, the wiser we get. It's, I'll tell you what's really interesting. It's something I touch on in my book. I've got a chapter on aging. And 
It's actually the aging brain. It used to be said that it's downhill all the way for the brain as we age because we lose neurons, we lose brain connections, and young people can absorb, perhaps absorbs not the right word. They have very, very um, strong, healthy brains with maximum neurons. And as we get older, we lose them. But two things happen. First of all, without being rude, they're younger, so they're a bit dumb. <laughs> so they can, they can get all the information in the world and jump to the wrong conclusion. They, you know, they just um, they don't have the experience to evaluate the information that's coming in. Although, of course, those young brains have got great strength. So in lots of fields, um, there's an enormous creativity in music field, in, uh, in maths, in science, it's often the youngest people that produce the most astonishing creativity. So there's pluses in having those hyper-effective brains. As we get older, we lose neurons um, steadily. But what they've discovered is that we get better and better at seeing patterns. Mm. And when you're able to see patterns, you only need a small number of data points most of the time to see what's actually going on. And we, this, the reason this is interesting, apart from the fact we're all aging, inevitably, is uh, this very much matches what happens in Chinese medicine. I've taught Chinese medicine to people. I've taught them diagnosis and differentiation of patterns. They sit there, they interview a patient. You know, if they're given an hour and a half, they end up with 17 pages of closely written detail about every aspect of the patient's life. And then you ask them to see patterns in it, and they can't, but they can't see the wood for the trees. When I was studying in China, I realized the first time in 1981, the Chinese doctors I was studying with took enormous pride in reaching a diagnostic and a differential, differential conclusion from the minimal number of data points. The key killer question, uh, you have headaches, it started then, it's this type of headache, they ask one question, they go, okay, I know now, I understand. So it's the same with life. We, are, we get, in that respect, we get smarter as we go along. We get wiser, which means we can address situations more appropriately um, with fewer data points because of our vast database of experience. I can't remember where that bit started. Well, we're, we're talking about wisdom. And, uh, and it's, and it's interesting to me that you bring up, I've been doing a, a bit of reading myself lately on brain function and the phenomenally plastic, uh, ability of our brains. This is, this is something that's fairly new, this whole, uh, neuroplasticity idea. You know, originally we were taught brains don't change, you know, you got what you got. And then as you start to lose it too bad, but in fact, it's constantly changing. And, and, and the ability to attend to that, to our, to attend to our experience can really help to drive that and enhance that process. So that, that brings me back to some of the things we've talked about in this discussion about not just doing motions or not just doing some sort of practice, but to be really actively engaged in that practice, because that, that right there, I suspect is really good for brain health. And as far as wisdom is concerned, I mean, I said it with spiritual teachers, but it's the same. I mean, I've, 
over the years, studied with a variety of Qigong teachers, uh, Tai Chi teachers, and I would say really it's more common than not to find people who are incredibly skilled at their field, their Tai Chi, their Qigong, whatever it is, their martial art, but are deeply unskilled in the art of being a reasonably decent human being. And in fact, the single-minded pursuit of a practice, even a spiritual one, if it isn't allied to this, I would I think it's a kind of humility, isn't it? A humility, I don't mean a fake humility, a humility where you really, really embrace the idea that you don't know it all and you're always willing to learn. Unless it's allied to that, it can actually make people turn people into monsters. Because they, you see, many people decide who they are, what they like, what they don't like, what they think, and what they believe at the age of 18, 23, 30, and then it doesn't change. They become stagnant in it. And, and as they get older, these kind of stagnations become more and more stagnant. Um, so they become mentally, emotionally, spiritually, although I don't like that word, less flexible. Mm-hmm. And and then so we you know we can see a lot of people like that. Basically, by the time that to be old, they're kind of crummy, bad tempered, <laughs> boring um, people you don't really want to spend that long with. Take a take somebody who's cultivated their we can say, for want of a better words, cultivated their chi, their strength, their um, willpower, and yet is sort of undeveloped and stagnant in those other areas of their life, they can become even worse. You know, they can become even blinder to what's going on. So their behavior, their emotional sensitivity can be really seriously compromised. So we see, we see this time and time again, I think. I, I, I would say I've seen it quite a lot anyway. Yeah, we're really back to this incredible dynamic. It sounds so simple, not to be conflated with easy, of finding the balance between yin and yang, finding the balance between activity and quietude. And and that changes from moment to moment. You know, it's not just like, oh, you do this thing and there you go, you're done. It's a, a continual process. It's a continual process. But of course, you know, if we go to in the healthiest way we'd say it's a continual game it's play yeah playing yes playing with really this most mysterious experience of all is actually having been born and being alive because you know unless we have some very strong belief in other lives or eternal souls we can say that there was a vast eternity where we didn't exist and then there's going to be an infinite eternity afterwards where we don't exist and we're just around for this briefest flash of time. And I, I, I love quotations. Two have come to mind, just if you don't mind. Please. One is um, Louisa M. Olcott, who wrote, I believe she wrote Little Women. Actually, that was her, I think. Could have been Emily Dickinson, but I think it was Louisa Olcott. She said, um, I'm not afraid of storms because I'm learning to sail my ship. Hmm which I think is a pretty good one. And so this is a quotation from the 19th century 
Chinese doctor, Fei Bo Xiu. Um, he said, there's nothing miraculous, only the plane, that's the plane and ordinary, but the perfection of the plane is miraculous. That really inspired me in the writing of my book, and, and, and I think it slightly annoyed some Yangsheng people, because there is a sort of, within the Yangsheng tradition, there, there is, you know, quite a lot of inhale green cheese seven times as you face the east and repeat this phrase and imagine the the lord of the pole star is entering through the, the top of your head and you know dancing in your belly and there's a lot of that and that to be honest didn't interest me at all what interested me is how to work with and manage our emotions um our mental processes our diet our drinking, our sleep, uh, our sex lives, our exercise, our nourishment through music and dance and nature and art, just the really, really ordinary building blocks of life, but perfecting them, trying to perfect them. And, and the result of that is miraculous. It's not all the weird, mysterious, esoteric stuff. At least that, that's my take on it. Yeah. And uh, in the principle of being willing to be wrong, uh, it may be next year I'll, I'll come back and say, I was completely wrong. I've discovered <laughs> the wonders of the esoteric stuff. Yeah. Isn't that one of the delights of living long enough to recognize that a lot of the time we're just plain wrong and we can come back and revisit it and ideally learn something from it? Yes. Well, it's painful. <laughs> yes, it is painful. I was going to say, uh, I think this is probably a, a good point to start winding it up talking about uh you know finishing up here with wisdom and and simple cultivation is a lovely lovely way to end this conversation before we do though i'd I'd like to know where can people find you or your work out on the internet i have a pretty pretty wide digital presence to be honest with you so i would say first of all i have a personal website. I've got a business website with the Journal of Chinese Medicine, but I have a personal website, which is peterdedman.co.uk, and there's a lot of the stuff that I'm into there. I have a YouTube channel, which I set up recently. So at the moment, that has a one and a half, a film of a one and a half hour talk I gave on the internal exercise tradition, and it's got some... It's got talk of the, uh, sorry, film of the talk I gave when I launched this most recent book. And it's got some Qigong, talks about Qigong and some video of me practicing Qigong. I was, yes, I was got a Facebook page for my book, Live Well, Live Long. So I've got lots of, lots of online presence at the moment. Great. I'll make sure they make their way to the show notes page. And just finally, you're, where, where are you in the, in the States? I am in the American heartland. I'm in St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. No, I was just going to say I'm coming to um, New York, so that's a long way from you in October to... Um, oh, New York. It's two hours by airplane. Is it? Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm doing a, a weekend on this kind of stuff, sort of talking, and then I'm also doing another weekend teaching Qigong. Ah, when will that be? When will you be in New York? It's um, around around the middle of October. I'll be it's being organised by Tri State University. So excellent! I'll make sure a link 
gets on the show notes page to that as well. Hey, Peter, thanks for your time today. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture Podcast. If so, please take a moment and visit www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com where you can click on the review on iTunes button to rate and review the show. Doing this helps other people to find the show. Also, you can express your appreciation by supporting the show with a donation. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in again next time. Thank you.